This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dr. Richard Schwartz. Richard Schwartz is the founder of the Center for Self-Leadership, and his books include Internal Family Systems Therapy and You're the One You've Been Waiting For. Richard Schwartz has developed internal family systems in response to clients' descriptions of experiencing various parts, many extreme, within themselves. He noticed that when these parts felt safe and had their concerns addressed, they were less disruptive and would accede to the wise leadership of what Richard Schwartz came to call the self. With Sounds True, Richard Schwartz has created a new audio learning series called Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts, discovering your true self through internal family systems therapy where he shows us how to engage even the most disturbing or unwanted parts of our psyche with openness and love, so we may unlock the hidden gifts and wisdom each part contains. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dick and I spoke about the multiplicity phenomenon, how we are all multiples, and how he stumbled upon the discovery that we are made of many parts. We talked about how our parts can take on emotional states as burdens and how the unburdening process works within IFS. We also talked about connections between IFS and shamanism, new discoveries about IFS through MDMA research, and how Dick is bringing IFS to the world of social activism, education, medicine, and mediation. And finally, we talked about what it means to be self-led and how this relates to spiritual liberation or enlightenment, how there are degrees of self-leadership, and what a black belt self-led day looks like and feels like for Dick Schwartz. Here's my conversation with Dick Schwartz. In preparing for this conversation, I had the chance to listen to your new audio series, Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts. And in that series, you really talk about internal family systems as a spiritual path. And I want to get there, Dick, and I want to talk to you about that. But to begin, I want your help in introducing the internal family systems, IFS model, to our listeners. I think sometimes people, when they hear about something like IFS, they think it's only for the initiated, the people who understand this private language that IFS therapists can tend to use. And I noticed that 
in preparing for this interview, I developed an agenda, which is to make IFS as accessible as possible. So help me here in the most accessible way possible, introduce the IFS model. Okay, well, that is a challenge, and uh, I share the goal. I just haven't found, I guess, the best elevator speech for it, but I'll try. Um, so IFS is a, as you said, it's become a kind of practice, life practice, and it does have a spiritual aspect to it, so you could call it a spiritual practice. And it's also a way of understanding human beings and their complexity and uh, and also how they can heal. And uh, I stumbled into this 30-some years ago and been exploring it ever since. And what I ran into back then was what I'm going to call the multiplicity phenomenon, the idea that, that we naturally have what I call parts, but other systems have called things like subpersonalities or ego states that are, in other words, an angry part of you that sometimes takes over and makes you say things you regret isn't just a bundle of anger and that if you were to focus on it and ask some questions of it, you would learn that it's a full range inner personality that maybe is also afraid and also hurt and that it protects other parts of you that are quite vulnerable. And so I stumbled into this simply because clients began talking this language to me and I became intrigued and, uh, and just have been studying these inner systems of clients that most people can access quite easily. We just never take the time to shift our focus inside. Or if we do, we're guided away from the phenomena by some kinds of meditations and spiritual practices that don't believe in the phenomena, so we don't notice it. But, yeah, the idea is that we're all naturally multiple, and that's a good thing, because each of them contains qualities and resources that help us in our lives. There, there aren't any bad parts. I'm sort of the Will Rogers of the phenomena. I've never met a part I didn't like, ultimately. And uh, trauma and attachment injuries and other slings and arrows have the effect of shifting them out of their naturally valuable roles into extreme roles that can be damaging and and they become frozen in the past during these traumas and they they still think you're five years old even though you've grown up and you don't need their services in the way you did when you were five. Um, they get frozen in these roles and they take on what I'm going to call burdens, which are extreme beliefs and emotions that entered your system from these bad experiences and attached to them almost like a virus and drive the way they operate. So, uh, so while they all are valuable, just like a kid in a family who's a dysfunctional family can become very acting out and, and uh, endanger his family or himself, that isn't the nature of the kid. That's because he carries these extreme beliefs and emotions that he got either from an outside trauma or from the role he's been forced into in the family. So the idea is that the same with these inner kids, that they, they aren't what they seem when you first meet them. And if you can 
access what I'm going to call yourself with a capital S and have a conversation with them from a place of curiosity and calm and confidence. They'll share their secret history of how they were forced into these roles, how much they hate what they've been forced into and how much they're afraid to leave the role because they're afraid of what might happen to you. So they're actually trying to protect you usually. And, uh, and then there are a bunch of parts that by dint of being hurt or scared or shamed shift from being happy, go lucky, inner little children to now being kind of radioactive, that we don't want anything to do with them because they have the power to make us feel all the things we felt when we were traumatized because they carry those burdens. And so we try to lock them up inside and keep them away from us and don't look back and just move on. But once you get a bunch of these, what I call exile parts, then uh, life is a lot more delicate because the world has could trigger them at any moment. And you could be overwhelmed by all that that they carry. So all these other protectors have to take on roles to keep them contained and to keep the world from triggering them. So all of that is the way I understand parts from years of of exploring all this. But the big contribution, I think, uh, is that in addition to them and actually just beneath the surface of them lies what I'll call the self, with a capital S, which is very similar to what many different spiritual traditions have names for, like Atman or Buddha nature and so on. And once accessed as wisdom about how to heal all this, and we'll take over sessions and begin to relate to parts in a healing way when it's accessed. And, and another thing I stumbled onto is a very quick way for most clients to access it simply by asking parts to open space inside and relax or step back, separate from the self, unblend. And as they do that, what I'm calling the self emerges spontaneously, suddenly, and universally. And it turns out it can't be damaged, and uh, it, as I said, knows how to take over and heal all this. So, how do I do? Uh, I think you lost a lot of people somewhere in that process, but the good news is we're going to break it down because I'm intensely interested in what you're teaching and have an intuitive resonance and have learned so much from your work and I'm very, very passionate about people tracking with you here. So we're going to start by the comment you made that we're all multiples. And, you know, what occurs to me is that I think most people know this. Most people know that this this rage thing that I went on, that was some weird rage part of myself. It's not really who I am, but, you know, it's the rage thing. And that part of me that wants to, you know, hide in the closet and suck my thumb, that's some other part. So my question is, if we all kind of know this, why is this a hard idea, do you think, for people often to accept? Why pretend that I'm one well, person when I obviously have these, you know, strange parts that take over? Yeah, yeah. Well, that once I, once I got hit to this, 
I started to explore that question of why is this so countercultural? And the answers that I've been able to come up with are, and uh, in a book that I think you guys are going to be publishing, working with us on, I I describe all this history, but it's called Many Minds, Oneself. Uh, And what I find is that this idea that the mind is naturally multiple uh, has, and healthily multiple has come up over and over through the course of, of uh, not only psychotherapy, but Western culture and some in Eastern culture. And then it gets shut back down over and over. And most recently, uh, it was pathologized by mainly by the people who talk about uh, multiple personality disorder, uh, starting probably with Pierre Genet, who was a trauma researcher, who made a lot of important, valuable contributions. But one thing, he, he ran into parts. He ran into this phenomenon. But he thought it was the product of trauma so that the unitary mind had become fragmented by the, uh, the intense pain. And the goal was to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. So he didn't respect or really understand the, you know, the independent and valuable nature of the parts and thought they were a sign of pathology. And, and so having multiple personalities has become a sign of, of mental illness. And uh, so that's that's the best I can do in terms of why it's become so countercultural. And there is something about the idea that you have one mind with different thoughts and emotions that seems appealing to human beings. And I'm not sure exactly why. I mean, I, you know, when I first encountered the phenomena, I had the same reaction everybody does. Oh my God, these clients are much sicker than I thought. Until I started listening inside myself and found them. Oh my God, I've got them too. And as you get to know them, it's, it's wonderful. It's just a really good way to live, to keep an eye on them and interact with them. But in the beginning, and, and largely because it's, it's so countercultural, it's quite jarring for some people. Okay, so someone's listening and they're like, but wait, maybe these are just emotional states. Why is Dick emphasizing so much that they're independent? And in the series, Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts, you talk about the personhood of these parts and how important it is to understand and relate to their personhood. And I can imagine someone saying, no, these are just sort of emotional states that take over. Yeah, and that's, again, what, the way I thought of it initially. And you can hold that position only so long if you actually interact with them. Because if you do, either inside yourself or if you're a therapist with your clients, you will learn what I learned, that they are much more than just unit, uh, unidimensional internal states and that they actually are little inner beings, and for lack of a better word. Uh, who in, in many ways are parallel to external people and, and also in the way they relate to each other. And, and uh, it is 
literally like this kind of internal family. So I'm what I what William James called a radical empiricist. I'm just kind of reporting the data, even though it took me way far away from my paradigm and my comfort zone. And uh, I'm not asking people to believe me because I'm saying it's true. I'm just I'm just pointing towards something that is, from my point of view, a very real phenomena that people can very easily uh, explore themselves and find out if it's true. So what was it that you were seeing in your therapy practice 30-some-odd years ago that showed you that these were independent beings with their own personhood, these parts of ourselves? Because that's what they were telling me. That, that's what I some point got very curious about the phenomena after I got over the freak out and everything. And just, I started to talk to them uh, directly at times, or I'd have my client talk to them. And, and as I stayed curious and let go of my preconceptions, they talked like a little inner person, you know, the, the scared part that made the client shrink so often would talk about, why it did that and, and who it was and how it also was angry and that it interacted with, uh, with the angry part to try and cover it up and, and keep it at bay and that it was protecting other parts that, that were very vulnerable and, and it could describe this whole network inside. It was like I'd, I'd opened the door to an inner world that I had to find and I were just sort of mystified by. So again, it's just, uh, and now, you know, thousands of therapists and uh, all over the world are finding the same thing because they actually tried it. And most of them came in quite skeptically about it. Now, you mentioned how these parts of us early in our life can take on burdens. And I'm wondering if you can explain that and maybe give me an example that lots of people could relate to. Yeah. So uh, let's say even accidentally in your family, one of your parents gave you the message that you weren't valued somehow. I'm sure that didn't happen to you, Tammy, but it sure happened to me several times, many times. So one part of you will take on this idea, this belief that you're not valuable because you got that from that caretaker. And with that belief will come a kind of terror that you're not going to survive because we're born with the knowledge that if we aren't valued by our caretakers, we don't live. So, uh, so that would be an example of a, a belief that then organizes the way this part is. So this part now becomes um, very eager to please people or some other protector of it does uh, to try and regain some kind of sense of uh, being valuable so, you'll die, so you won't die. And, but the, this pervading sense of being worthless also influences how much you show yourself in your life and who who you think uh, you can uh, have as a partner and and 
and, and who you really believe you are unless you actually get to that part and help it out of where it's stuck in the past, where it got the belief from your mother, and help it unburden, help it release that extreme belief or emotion that it carries, at which point it will immediately transform into this happy-go-lucky, playful child that was originally. So it's almost like these beliefs are like curses that come onto our parts and attach to them, and once uh, once we unburden, uh, the parts snap out of the trance they were in, and they 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 become valuable again. Can you help me understand how the unburdening process takes place in IFS? Yeah, so I stumbled onto this years ago because uh, when I would ask, like I, you know, I got hit to the fact that people had parts and. I'm a structural family therapist, so I was trying to change all these inner relationships just the way I was changing external family relationships. And I would try, once I found self, I would try to get self to interact with the parts that had been exiled, that it had locked away, and bring them out. And uh, would find that we could do that, and, and I could even, the client would go and would actually hold and comfort this little child that felt worthless. And the child in the moment would feel a lot better, but the next session would come back and was still feeling as bad. And so as we explored that, the part itself would talk about how it carried this, this sort of tar on its skin. That's the way they would describe it, or carried a fireball in its gut, or this pain, or this weight on its shoulders. And that it that wasn't it, but it carried it. And this is literally what these parts would talk about that was making it continue to feel so bad. And so I came to call those burdens and exploring them. They were extreme beliefs or extreme emotions that came from there where they were stuck in the past from those experiences. And uh, I found that we would say, okay, well, what happens if you take that out of your body or off of your body? And the part would take it off and would, again, would feel a lot lighter and more playful. But then the next session, it would be back in them in the same way. And so, again, through trial and error, discovered that for a part to unburden and keep the burdens out, they need really two things. In addition to being loved by the self, they need you, yourself, not necessarily the therapist, but they need you to get what happened when they got the burden in the past and also uh, how bad that was for, the, for them. So you need to become a compassionate witness to your own history. And then they also need you, yourself, to enter that scene in this kind of inner world and be there for that often a child in the way, he, in your case, she needed at the time. And actually ask that little girl what she wants you to do back there for her that she couldn't do back then. And so clients will actually go and and uh, yell at the abuser for this little girl or or push their parent away or, or do whatever part wants. And then when it's done, when all that's done, 
bring that girl out of that time period to a safe, comfortable place, at which point I would have you ask if she's ready to unload the emotions and beliefs she's been carrying. And most parts, if those two steps are complete, the witnessing and the re- what we call a retrieval, taking her out of where she's stuck, if those are complete, the answer will be yes. And then we'll literally send these, this tar or this fireball or the weight or whatever it is out of the client system through one of the elements, usually light, water, fire, wind, or the part will decide what it, how it wants to send that out. And then once it's gone, the part immediately feels much lighter or better. And we can invite qualities into it. Part will invite qualities into it to fill up the spaces the burdens took that are always valuable. And that's a kind of consolidated piece of healing of that part. And then we bring in the parts that hated it or have been afraid of it to come and see they don't have to continue to protect the system, and they they shift into other roles, too. Now, that will stick. The burdens won't come back if during the next three weeks to a month you were to visit that girl and make sure she was still okay. So there's there's some kind of homework that takes place with clients, too, to to, uh, keep it all going. And one of the things I like best about access is that many people can do this on their own after they get the hang of it. And uh, that's why I say it becomes a kind of life practice. Now, in the audio series, you draw a parallel that I thought was very interesting between shamanic practice and the work of an IFS practitioner, or if I'm doing it myself, a shamanic path and the IFS path. Can you talk some to that? Yeah. Uh Pretty early on, I, I heard about shamanism back in the late 80s, early 90s, and and uh, and then there was a book that came out by Sandra Ingerman, I believe, about it. And I became very intrigued by the parallels because what they were describing seemed to be a very similar world to the one that my clients would enter when they would do this process. And... Um, you know, we didn't need any inductions or or uh, medicines to get there. All I would do is be have clients focus on a part, and suddenly, at least some of them was in this other world where they could see other parts and they could see a kind of landscape in many cases and so on. And so, I do think that it is basically the same world that the shamans for centuries have been exploring with their their healing practices, and that they talk about soul retrieval, for example, going and getting a part out of where it's stuck. So all of that seemed very parallel, uh, quite amazingly parallel when I stumbled onto that. Um, the difference being they rely a lot more on what they call power animals or guides of various kinds to do a lot of the healing, whereas uh, our my system, uh, it's the client self who becomes uh, the primary healer. Now, you mentioned that you stumbled on the self. 
you stumbled on the fact that when parts can open space, and I think you used the word unblend, that there's this self here. And first of all, I just want to you know say something, Dick. I don't know if you're just being humble or whatever, but this phrase that you used a couple times, stumbling on these what I think are very brilliant discoveries. It's kind of interesting. I mean, have you really fumbled and stumbled your way here? Totally. Yeah. It's, <laughs> um, it, it was all a process of discovery. Uh, it, yeah, this didn't come out of my, my brain's brilliance. I, I, I was an average student in school, so it's not because I'm so smart. It's because if I'm proud of anything, it's that I stayed very curious and I, discarded a lot of presumptions that I had about the phenomena. So I was, I sort of had beginner's mind, as I know you know what I mean, Mm -hmm. through the whole experience and, and was just intrigued and kind of fascinated. And I was very lucky to have some clients who were really articulate about it initially and would tell me when I had it wrong and would say, no, this is the way it is. And if I'm proud of anything, it's that I actually listened to them. So, and because of my background as a family therapist, I was assiduously avoiding most intrapsychic kinds of concepts. So I came with very few preconceptions and I really had to learn from my clients. But yeah, it was all a process of stumbling and, and uh, being amazed. It was, it's like, whoa, if this pans out, if this is the way it is and other people too, this is amazing, <laughs> was my constant refrain in the early days. And it turns out it is amazing. And you discovered then something that you called the self, which is different from our parts. How did you discover the self? Just again, through trial and error. I mean, I, I was, uh, when I learned that parts weren't what they seemed and actually uh, were protective, and I learned that just from the parts, then I decided, okay, I'm going to get my client to listen to them more rather than fight them or, or try and lock them away. And so I would set up dialogues between my client and initially in the gestalt empty chair technique. Uh, and as I would have them talk to these parts, other parts would interfere. It was clear. They would suddenly become angry at the part or be afraid of it. And... So it reminded me of family sessions where I was working with maybe a teenage daughter and her critical mother. And as she was interacting, the teenage girl became angry at the mother. And you look around the room and you see the father's cueing her that he disagrees with the mother too. And we learned in family therapy to get him to cut it out and to move back out of her line of vision and create a better boundary between the mother and the daughter and then things settle down and they have a good conversation. I thought maybe the same thing in this inner family would work. So I began asking clients to find the part who had jumped in and was interfering in the relationship with the part they were trying to initiate, the target part they were trying to talk to and ask it to just give us some space, step back, let us continue without its interference. And to my amazement, clients could do that. And when they did, when these parts would open space like that, this other person would emerge who knew how to relate in a healing way to the target part and would be 
what we, call, we have what we call the eight C's of self-leadership. So it would be curious, like in a pure way, without an agenda, and would be calm, at peace, and confident, relative to the part, and also very often spontaneously compassionate. And when they get there, I would say, what part of you is that? And they would say, that's not a part like these others. That's really who I am. That's myself. So that's why I call it the self. And it turns out, again, that that's just as parts open space, that comes out in everybody spontaneously. And not only can do this inner healing, but can relate to the outside world in a healing way too, in in an effective way. So self-leadership has become a big part of the work and, and knowing when you're in your body uh, with yourself. And that was some of what I think uh, the exercises in the, in the course are about. Uh, and knowing when a part is there instead and being able to ask that part to open space in the moment becomes part of this life practice. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. Now, I'm thinking that some listeners may not be clear when you say open space, that a part can open space. And I want to make this really clear what that means when it's happening. And you know, let's go back to that worthless part that I think many of us might feel, some part of us that just feels, you know, shoot, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm basically not lovable, something like that. Some part, I think a lot of people have a person inside that feels, you know, at the end of the day, I'm probably not worth being loved, something like that. Right. And, you know, in your work, if I understand that correctly, if that's an extreme feeling, that could be an exiled sense. At the end of the day, you know, I'm worth zero. Uh, Often it is, yeah. And often we try to exile it, but it comes out whenever we're not getting accolades or whenever we're not distracting ourselves by being busy at breaks out of exile. Yeah. But go ahead. Okay. And then with this exiled part, there's a another part of me that might come forward that doesn't want that to get discovered. So maybe that's in my case the workaholic part or the the part that's mm-hmm. going after those accolades. So what would it mean if I recognize that I have these two parts and they're in relationship that huh? the space could open for the self to come forward. Right. So let's just hypothetically say you have those two parts. Hypothetically. And <laughs> and I would have you often, almost always, we would start with the second one, with the part that uh, tries is a workaholic and tries to bring accolades. 
says that for sure would be a protector, and we don't start with exiles, and the other one is likely to be an exile. Do you follow that? I do. So is it fair to say that the exiles and protectors come in these pairs in IFS? Often often in pairs. Pairs are triangles. So you might have the workaholic that tries to bring the accolades to counter the worthlessness and make you feel good and keep that part down, the worthlessness down. But you also might have a part that tells you not to try uh, and, and can try to make you feel bad about yourself so you don't take any risks and is polarized with the one that wants you to get out there and work all the time. Um, so often that that is a common triangle, if you follow this. Okay, I'm with you. Two, two, two protectors trying to protect the same exile, but in opposite ways. Almost like in a family, you've got a vulnerable child, and one parent's going to be the hard ass, and the other one's too soft to counter that. Sort of the same idea. Mm-hmm. So I would I would start with one of the protectors, and I would have you focus on it and find it in your body, which you could do readily. And then I would ask you this magic question, how do you feel toward that part, that workaholic part? And you might say, I kind of depend on it. I like it. gets me a lot of things, but it really also makes me really tired and, and uh, dominates too much or some version of that. And so I would say, I get that, but let's get the parts that get irritated with it or or overwhelmed by it. Let's get them all to give us a little space in there. Just relax and step back. And as you did that, and people just kind of have a knowledge about how to do that, you would say, okay, they did, or not. If they don't, then we work with them. But usually, you did, and I'd say, now how do you feel toward this workaholic part? And it's likely to be some version of, I'm curious about it, I want to help it, not have to work so hard. And then I know I've got more self. So the simple act of having you ask other parts to step back, relax, open space, separate, frees up more of yourself. I didn't tell you to be curious. I didn't tell you. just automatically kind of happens. And then you can have a good conversation where the workaholic part will give you information about what it's protecting, which will lead us to the worthless part. But we don't go to those parts without permission. So we would negotiate with the workaholic part permission to go to the one that carries the worthlessness. And and I would have you focus on it, find it in your body, how do you feel toward it? And you might be really afraid of it. So I would ask the parts that fear it to give us some space. And how do you feel toward it? No, I feel sorry for it. I see now that it's just a scared child. Is this helping or am I making this it, it, it is come to life? It is. It is. So you mentioned that when the parts unblend with the self. The self comes forward with these eight C's. And I didn't get them all, Dick. I got curious, calm, confident, and compassionate. But what are the last four C's? Yeah, so the other four include clarity. So maybe as you started toward the workaholic part, it looked like this really important person that you need to listen to. And then 
as the others step back, including the ones who depend on it, the image shifted, and now you saw a teenage kid trying desperately to please everybody and, and, and work hard. So you shifted, your image shifted because yourself sees clearly that it's not this little important person. It's just a kid trying her best. And the same thing happens in the outside world. I could have you focus on somebody that, you, that bothers you a lot, and your image would be uh, of some ugly person. <laughs> And I get those parts to step back and you'd see the person much more clearly. So clarity is one. And then courage, like suddenly you would have the courage to go into these inner basements or abysses where the, the exiles live and, and be able to help them. Whereas before you were really afraid to do that. Uh, and then creativity. So whereas you, when your parts are there, you have very limited ways of relating to people or to parts inside. Self has wide range. There's lots of creative ways of being with parts and people. And then finally, and this relates to the spirituality of it, self has this kind of knowledge uh, that you're connected. You're connected to other other people uh, that you're also connected to something bigger than us and that you're connected to the earth. And so there's this kind of knowledge about our connectedness. It's very reassuring, but it also fuels our compassion because if we're so connected, then if somebody suffers over here, we're going to want to help them because we know they're at some level, they're the same as us. And also there's a desire to connect from self desire to, to meet and feel and be uh, present with the self of another person or the self of our parts and uh, put those, connect those dots in a way. And that, for me, is, is part of the spirituality of it, is that you know, there, are, there are myths and various spiritual traditions that, for whatever reason, God subdivided or exploded and that we're, we all carry these these um, pieces inside of us, and there's a, a desire to bring it all back together. And I, I do think that, that there's something to that. So these eight C words all describe what it's like to be in a state of self-leadership. And you make a pretty outrageous claim in this audio teaching series that discovering self-leadership could be considered comparable to something like spiritual liberation or classical enlightenment. I thought, wow, that's a bold claim. Can you unpack <laughs> that a bit? Yeah, well, again, in this uh, book I mentioned earlier, I looked at every religious tradition and also the, the esoteric branches of those traditions to see how they, con they conceptualize what I'm calling self. And indeed, Everyone had a word for it, and virtually everyone, in describing what they would call enlightenment, it was really that shift in your center of gravity, your identity, from what many traditions would call the ego, in a pejorative way, which I, I'm a crusader against, actually, because it's really just your parts, what they call the ego. And yeah, they do all the things that, that people complain about, but 
if you love them rather than try and ignore them or despair or disparage them, you're much better luck. Anyway, that's an aside, but um, they were all in very similar language describing self and describing enlightenment as this, this sort of knowledge that that's who you really are. And that when you get that in your bones, when you really shift your center of gravity to self, then everything is different. And that's what I find. And that's what I find happens with clients. As they know, I'm not this little piece of worthlessness that I thought I was, or I'm not this achieving part. I'm not this workaholic. That's not who I am, really. That beneath that is this center with not only those C words, but lots of other great qualities that I didn't include, partly because I don't begin with the letter C, <laughs> but that all the spiritual traditions also describe. I've just been reading a guy named, do you know the name John McCransky? No. Okay, he's a Tibetan Buddhist leader and uh, lama and wrote a very nice book about this phenomenon and described in a much better way than I can, the same thing I'm calling, that he calls Buddha nature, or Dzogchen, and that that's who we really are. And that that, and in his book, and many, many books I've read, that's what they're saying, that once you get that, you're enlightened. So I know it sounds outrageous, but, and it's hard to hold on to that, because our parts can blend again and take over again, and so on. And the, the sort of, there are degrees of that enlightenment, degrees of knowing yourself as who you are and leading from that place in your life. So, you know, we have probably black belts, brown belts, <laughs> levels of enlightenment. But uh, the more you unburden, the more... See, the burdens that our parts carry keep us away from that, that knowledge and uh, create disconnects, burdens in general, make it so our parts feel isolated from us and don't know us and that our self is, is uh, not in our embodied as much because of the burdens and, and we don't have as much access to whatever you want to call the big self. So the process of unburdening itself brings you closer and closer to enlightenment. Can you describe to me a day lived as a black belt self-led human. <laughs> What's that like? This is a black belt day. Yeah, I, I wish I could uh, describe my personal life that way, but I, unfortunately, I, I, you know, I, I can describe that way. Well, I just, I just chose one, one day, Dick. I wasn't like, you know what I mean? I yeah, was okay, just like, one, day. one day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, on a, on a really good day, I feel a sense of inner well-being. I feel... Um, this love, all those C words in my body and uh, maybe I'm teaching or I'm working with clients and I, I literally feel a vibrating energy running through my body that makes my fingers tingle that we call self-energy that comes with this and that other systems call ki or prana and that just seems to come automatically when parts open a lot of space. So all that's happening in, in me and then as I'm interacting with people, I'm doing it very spontaneously without a lot of thought. It's just words are coming very easily and smoothly, and, uh, and the words seem very wise to people. <laughs> and 
and I'm really enjoying because I feel so connected. I really, like if I'm working with a client, it feels like a sacred experience to go on these adventures inside them. And so it's like I'm meditating. I feel uplifted by the experience. I don't feel drained as a therapist. I feel very privileged to be with people in that state. And then it's the same when I'm teaching. I just love helping people come to this. And, and so I feel like I'm doing what I'm here to do. That's, that's the kind of uh, sense I have. And that is what uh, I believe, that we are helping people unburden and become more enlightened and embodied in self, not so that they leave and go to these other realms and spend their time in unity or non-dual states, but so they bring self to this plane and start to become self-led activists in the world. Because I believe that's, that's part of my job is to, to help people do that. And I actually do work with social activists to do this. So uh, I'm kind of rambling, I think, but um, yeah, but that's a good day for me. And describe to me what it's like when you're not having such a good day, but you're somehow returning, at least at moments, to self-leadership. Well, I could describe an interaction I had with my wife about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> that works. Or, or 10 minutes before, before we started. Uh, where um, I won't give you the content of our argument, but it's a chronic one. And, uh, and she got very angry at me, and so I got very angry at her. And so we had these two angry parts doing the interaction with each other for a period of time. And when that happens, uh, <laughs> I'm very, very far away from the person I was describing earlier because... I hear all these, this voice saying negative things about her and she looks less attractive to me and, and so on. But now, after a lot of uh, work on myself and, and experience with this, at the same time, I know that that's just a part that's taken over temporarily. And I know that it's just a part of her and that we had this little unpleasant interaction between these two parts, but both of us still have a self, and I know that myself loves her very much and thinks she's very attractive, and that all this is going to recede before too long. And so that makes a huge difference. And because we've both been healing the exiles that get triggered by these angry parts of each other, that doesn't last very long, whereas in the beginning of our relationship, it would last for days. And now it lasts for, you know, usually most, maybe half an hour. And then we're back and we're connected and we're, we're thinking the other is attractive. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, I want to circle back to something that you said as an aside. Something like, you know, I'm a fierce crusader against pejoratively talking about the ego and that the ego is made up of our parts in their interactions together. And I I wanted to understand more how you see the ego in IFS. 
Well, what's traditionally called the ego uh, is what I would say is a collection of protectors who, uh, you know, in, in your case, in my case, would be one would be the workaholic. Another would be a part that's worried about pleasing everybody. Another would be a part that uh, that's very intellectual and, and is trying to figure things out and make sense of the world and help us help got us through graduate school and uh, so it's a collection of, of several what we call manager parts that are trying to manage our lives so we don't get hurt and they're trying their best and sometimes they they do all the things that they get a bad name for they keep us attached and they they make us kind of shallow and they, they don't want us to spend time meditating and they and so on and so on and when we try to meditate, they're the ones that are yapping all the time, the, the monkey minds that uh, have such a bad name. And if instead of trying to shoo them away and feeling irritated by them, you go to them often in the beginning of a meditation and you just love them up and thank them for trying so hard and remind them that It'll be good for everybody if they give you a little space. Uh, then they all relax, and you have this great meditation, and you don't have to battle with them. And they don't feel, you know, abused by you um, for just trying to do their jobs. So that's some of what I'm trying to bring to many different spiritual traditions that have this attitude. And I was part of the Mind and Life Conference a year and a half ago, I guess it was. And I tried to bring this to the Dalai Lama because he says that you have these these destructive emotions and you have these constructive emotions. And for me, that's just a big, big problem. Say more about that. It's a big problem. You don't believe that anger and all that hot rage is a destructive emotion? No, they're not. They're, they're parts that carry those burdens, but they're just trying to protect. And if you go to them with compassion, you know, what I'm trying to get people to do is become inner bodhisattvas. You know, not just bodhisattvas in the outside world, but to do that in the inner side world. Or when I talk to Christians, I'm, trying to, I'm saying, what Jesus did in the outside world, do in your inside. Go to the exiles. Jesus loved the poor people and loved the lepers. And, and you've got a bunch of lepers in there. And so just be a good Christian inside. So uh, if you think of your anger or your, uh, you know, the Buddhists have theirs that they don't like the most, um, which I forget what they are. But if you see them as those are just bad, destructive emotions, then you are going to have an attitude about them, and you're going to try to have antidotes to combat them. But if you see them as parts trying their best, little kids who are stuck in these terrible roles and are trying their best to keep you safe, which is what they are, then you'll go to them with compassion. And that's what I t said to him. You know, you tell us to go with compassion to your external enemies. Why not do that to our internal enemies? So, and and what happened in that dialogue? You know, I don't think he really understood what I was saying, or I I couldn't really follow what he was how he was responding. So it didn't really seem to go anywhere. Mm -hmm. 
But it made headlines in the Buddhist newspapers. And when you talk about this angry part as being like a little kid, is that because it it came online when we were young? Yeah. Um, Although, you know, at best, they're usually teenage. Most, Most parts are quite young, and they stay that way. But yeah, most of our parts came online. They were, they were, but I'll phrase it differently. They were forced into the, this angry role when you were quite young. And they're frozen back there too. And they still think you're five years old and that the world is as dangerous as it was then. And that they've got to keep uh, the, the anger going because you never know when you're going to get blindsided like, like it was when you were at the mercy of an abusive parent, maybe something like that. So even just like, here's a really easy experiment for people to try. If they were to just focus on a protector, maybe the anchor, but maybe some other protector and get curious about it and then ask it how old it thought they were, most people will get a single digit. And just updating these parts is a big relief to them often. Now, one of the things that I learned in listening to your new audio series is that one of the ways that we can become aware of what parts are living inside of us that are heavily burdened is by seeing what triggers us in other people. And I thought that was just very useful, but also I'm curious, Dick, what triggers you in other people, and how can you share with us the IFS model to understand how that might be something inside you that's still burdensome? Okay, well, about the only person who still triggers me is my wife. And so... uh, What an important job she has. Indeed, and and that's the way we come to see the people who trigger us as our what we call tormentors, with a hyphen between the tor and the mentor. So by triggering me, she's mentoring me about what I need to heal. And uh, there's, <laughs> she's done a good job with a bunch of things that I've healed because of her, and there's still a couple. So actually the content of our most recent interaction, I'm embarrassed to admit, is around household chores and how our uh, I don't do enough, which is true. And I'm trying hard to be better. And from this part of me's point of view, it's very hard for her to see the progress sometimes. (laughs) And so that was the content. And so because... um, my mother tried very, very hard to get me to do a lot of stuff around the house and would spend a lot of her life frustrated with me because uh, she didn't succeed very well. Then there's a part that, that is very allergic to criticism about this that I really have to, to work with and can be very defensive, which just makes her crazy. Makes Jean my wife. So, uh, so that was the content, and so what I've, what I hope to still work on is go to that boy who's stuck back with my mother, and help him see that Jean isn't her, and that I don't have to be defensive about it, and 
And then also go to the lazy part of me that doesn't want to have to, well, not only is it lazy, but it has, it still has some patriarchal attitudes about housework. I'm also embarrassed to admit, you've got me. <laughs> oh, this is getting good. This is getting there. good. Yeah. <laughs> and so I have yet to totally unburden that one. And, uh, uh but still plan to. And, uh, yeah. And so she's still, uh, tormenting me that I need to heal that stuff. And then I also need to work with the part that reacts so angrily to her angry part. Just at this point, this has become such a chronic issue that there are parts of her that are kind of shut up. So how's that? That's that's good. Now, I'm curious, both of you knowing what you know about self-leadership and your comment that it can take about half an hour at most to sort of reset back into this being centered in the self, how does that work in a situation like this? Yeah, so we'll have those exchanges and then get a little distance from each other, and we both begin to talk to our parts. Sometimes it's hard for me because she likes to talk to him out loud. So I'm hearing this angry part go on about me in the other room. <laughs> but <laughs> but uh, we'll, we'll have a, a talk and, and uh, remind them. Uh, she's, you know, she's got stuff with her father, of course, and so on. And get them to step back and, and then we'll come back and the process is what I'll call speak for your part rather than from it. So rather than my defensively saying, why do you always come, you know, that kind of stuff, I'm saying, you know, when you pointed out that I left the mustard on the counter in the way that you said it, it triggered this little part of me that feels, that used to feel so criticized by my mother, and then that triggered this defensive guy. And so I'm sorry I let him take over that way, and I'm going to keep working on him. Uh, and it would be helpful if, when you saw the mustard on the counter, you didn't lead with that part, but I can't, you know, tell you what to do. But, uh, so some version of that. Mm-hmm. And, but we're both saying it from an open-hearted place and reconnecting in the process. So, so, uh, yeah. That's how we try to do it. Well, that seems like a very important teaching. Speak for your parts, not from them. That seems very important. Yeah. That's totally valuable. There's one final thing I want to make sure we talk about, and it's something that you and I spoke about when we were together recently, and you also brought it forward in this new audio teaching series, that someone that you've trained, an IFS practitioner, has been doing some interesting MDMA research And one of the things that is being discovered is that when people are in their MDMA journey, they have ready access to these parts. And these parts are coming forward and having conversations and having healing experiences. And I wanted to hear more about this. Yeah, that's been very moving for me. Uh, Yeah, the man is named Michael Mithoffer and his wife Annie have spearheaded this uh, big movement to become a kind of movement because they're 
in what they call phase three trials now with the FDA because they've shown that MDMA is so effective with PTSD. And uh, Michael is a, and, and Andy both are IFS therapists. And in the protocol, so they spend eight hours in a, in a session with somebody while they're doing the, the medicine. And um, the protocol is they'll just do a kind of Rogerian client-directed approach with the person unless spontaneously they begin to work with their parts and then they'll shift some into IFF. And they found almost uh, 80% of these people spontaneously without any cueing from the therapist start doing a very IFS-like process because it turns out that the MDMA seems to access a huge amount of self for some reason and helps all these protectors relax. And then, as I keep saying, when people access a lot of self, they know how to do this. They know how to heal their parts, and they start to do it and tell, tell the therapist about it. So he's got a lot of videos of people saying things like, uh, like the guy who was a combat vet in Iraq sees his anger, who earlier had described as this little demon with red eyes that he was trying to choke and who was stabbing him. He sees that he's locked it in a jail in there and it was a mistake. And, it, and he's opening the door now and he's letting it out and he's getting to know it and they're becoming friends. And he did it totally without any cueing from the therapist. So for me, it was very validating because it, it just says that I stumbled onto process that we know how to do. It's something that we do naturally when when we access enough of this self. And, uh, yeah. Okay, just one final question, Dick. This new audio series has more than a dozen guided exercises and practices where you lead people in guided journeys to work with their parts. And one of the questions that came up for me is, how effective is it really, and do you know in your experience, for people to do this kind of work on their own with an audio series versus working with a therapist? I mean, can you really do this kind of deep work on your own? Uh, many people can do an amazing amount on their own. Again, because of what I've been saying, it is a kind of natural process we know how to do. And then there will be people, particularly people with really, really bad trauma histories who will have protective parts that won't let them do it, or if they do succeed to some degree, might uh, shut it down suddenly or even some ways find ways to punish them. So, uh, but most people, if you haven't had, if you don't have those kinds of parts, uh, can do an awful lot on their own. All right. Very good. And just to end our conversation, what do you see as the new frontier, the next frontier for IFS? I noticed uh, you caught my ears when you said that you were working with social activists. And of course, that's something we need in our time. What's the new frontier? Well, it's funny you should ask. Our, our next conference, the theme is New Horizons. and There's a bunch. So, yeah, we're moving it fairly rapidly out of the psychotherapy 
not, I mean, it's still in the psychotherapy world, but moving it into other areas. So, uh, for example, I do trainings, uh, co-lead trainings with a guy named David Hoffman for mediators and conflict resolution people. Um, we have, have a plenary at our conference on bringing it into education and helping kids learn to do this from an early age and learn teachers how to stay in self when they're with the kids. I'm also going to present a conference on bringing this to schizophrenia because it turns out that voices are parts. And our our uh, psychiatry profession has terrified people about their voices. And if you just help them not be so scared and listen to them, they'll, they'll shift. And uh, what else? So medicine, there's some initiatives and... Um, it's all quite overwhelming for me to stay on top of, but uh, it's also quite thrilling. Uh, spirituality, as I've been saying, I've been collaborating with Locke Kelly, who I think you know, and and uh, some other people in that realm. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. And in conclusion, I think you and I should both do more housework. Very good. <laughs> You too, Sammy. Okay. Yes, yes. My house is not company. my house is not a hotel, I've been told. Yes, very good. I've been speaking with Dick Schwartz. He's created with Sounds True a new six-session audio learning series. It includes more than a dozen guided practices. It's powerful medicine. It's called Greater Than the Sum of Our Parts, Discovering Your True Self through internal family systems therapy. He's also the author of several books on IFS, including Internal Family Systems Therapy and You Are the One You've Been Waiting For. Dick, it's great to talk to you, and I hope to be able to have many more conversations with you as we work together to introduce IFS to as many people as possible. It's such a powerful approach. Thanks for all your good stumbling. Thank you for all... Your support, Tammy, it means, I can't tell you how much it means to me to have you uh, helping me with this and so uh, into it. So it really is wonderful. Soundstrue.com, waking up the world. Thanks for listening.